But this morning, uh, we are doing uh, the parables. We're going through, for the uh, month of August, going through all these parables. And then in September, we're going to start the book of John. And I'm doing three of those parables, so I just did the first two weeks. Now, the third week, uh, I'm trying to introduce you to a couple people like, this is Eric Jafruti, if you don't know him. Uh, Eric is, uh, when we started Element, he was one of the first guys I sought out. Uh, because I believe that he is such a strong and valuable asset to uh, the kingdom of God. And I was like, will you, you know, do this with us? And in churches, I believe you need a plurality of eldership. In, in scripture, uh, elder is synonymous with the word pastor. And so at a church, you need a plurality of elders who see themselves as pastors to a body. And so right now we have, we have three elders in our church. It's me, it is Eric, and it's Tom Holmquist right there. Okay. Uh, just letting you guys know that. And, and for a spiritual direction, we, we kind of set the spiritual direction of where element goes. And so I want you, Tom is usually in the back praying. If you go through the gospel class and want to become a member, you'll typically meet with Tom and his wife. His wife is way more scarier than he is. Uh, <laughs> hey, I know. Anyway, uh, and so you, you'll meet Tom a lot, but I want Eric to come up a lot because I want you guys to be able to connect with him, to know who he is. And so it's one of the reasons why I put him up here a lot. Almost every couple of months I have him teach, so he's doing a parable. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. Good morning, Element. Good morning. Okay, we're doing the parable of the sower today. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. I happen to pick uh, probably the one with the longest number of verses. 23 verses, so we're going to get right into it, and I'm going to work through it here. Last time I taught, um, I had like three columns of scripture on the, uh, you guys probably remember that, and um, some in my family said, you know, I think that's a little bit too much maybe. Well, I didn't do much better this time, but you'll get used to it. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 1. Hope you have your Bible today. Okay, it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that as we get into your word, Lord, that the word of your kingdom would go out and that our ears would be open to hear, that our eyes would be open to see, Lord, and that our hearts would be able to understand what it is you have to say to each one of us this morning. We're all in different places, Father, in our lives and in our walks, and maybe some here don't even know you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each one of us right where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in Matthew chapter 13, as well as in Mark chapter 4, we have recorded a group of parables that describe the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Let's remember that parables are stories that are drawn from everyday experience and were used to illustrate the central truth of the message. Jesus tells us here that the central truth of these parables is the secret or the mystery of the kingdom. Look at verse 10 in chapter 13. Then the disciples came and they said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
How many of you here enjoy a good mystery? Anybody? Well, it's not surprising. Apparently, a lot of us do. Just look at the most popular TV shows that are on television, from all of the CSIs to 48 Hours Mystery. You know, that we're faced with these puzzling circumstances that are unusual and they're difficult to understand and they're revealed to us piece by piece. They gradually unfold them. In the biblical sense, however, a mystery is not something that's really mysteriously deep or dark or profound or difficult to understand. It's more of a technical concept in the scriptures that refers to something that has been kept secret for a long time, but now it's finally revealed. Take a look at, uh, at Romans chapter 16 with me. Romans 16, verse 25. <clears throat> In Romans 16, 25, the Apostle Paul writes and says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. We see here that the word mystery refers to the divine purpose of God designed from all eternity, which was kept secret from men until God was ready to reveal it as part of his redemptive plan. In the parables given this day, Jesus sets forth a new truth about the kingdom of God, which was not revealed in the Old Testament, but which was disclosed during his earthly ministry. But to see this, we have to go back to the Old Testament. So we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2, it's after Ezekiel, before Hosea. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. And we're going to take a look at an, a dream and an interpretation of the dream that God gives to um, Daniel. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Daniel 2. <clears throat> Here we see that King Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream that he didn't understand. And none of the wise men or the magicians, the enchanters in his kingdom, none of them could tell him what the dream was or the interpretation of the dream. But God revealed the mystery to Daniel as well as the interpretation. And we see the dream in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now we see the interpretation of this dream in verse 44, 44 and 45. And in, the, in those days, no, and in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom and shall, that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure." What we see here is the Old Testament perspective or picture about the kingdom of God. 
The prophets looked forward to the glorious day when God would set up his reign on earth. The coming of God's kingdom was viewed as a single great event. On this day, his reign would displace all other kingdoms and authorities and break the proud sovereignty of man manifested in the rule of nations. God alone would be king in those days. That's what the Jews were looking for. So now, let's fast forward back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John would have understood the kingdom that he was preaching to be the kingdom of God foretold in the Old Testament, what we just read about. If you look at verse 11, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is saying that the coming one will bring a twofold baptism. Some will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and experience the salvation and the kingdom of God. Others would be baptized into the fires of final judgment. This is made clear by verse 12. It says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We see here the separation of the righteous to salvation and the wicked into fiery judgment. The term unquenchable fire indicates that this is no ordinary human experience, but it's the future final judgment of God. So with this expected kingdom in mind, as John sits in prison, he begins to wonder, is Jesus really the one? I, I don't see it. I remember, the, I know the prophecy, but is, is Jesus really the one who's supposed to be bringing this? And we read in Matthew 11, um, verse 2 and 3, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. In verse 6, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why does John ask Jesus if he's the one? Because he doesn't see the fulfillment of the prophecy that he's expecting. Where was the baptism of the Spirit? Where was the judgment of the wicked? Roman legions were marching through Jerusalem, and Pilate, a pagan Roman, had authority over the Jews. An idolatrous and immoral Rome ruled the world with an iron hand. You see, John's problem was the problem of every devout Jew, including Jesus' closest disciples, who were trying to understand the ministry of Jesus. How could he be the bearer of the kingdom while sin and sinful institutions remained intact and unpunished? What does Jesus say? He says in verse 6, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does it mean? Jesus is saying that, yes, I am the bearer of the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is here. But he's, he's saying there's a mystery here, a new truth about the kingdom being revealed for the first time. God's kingdom is to work among men in two different stages. Instead of a single event where God's rule changes the external and political order of society, he first comes and he changes the spiritual order of things by attacking the rule of Satan and sin. The kingdom is still yet to come as prophesied by Daniel, and the world will yet see God's kingdom come with power 
and displace every other rule and authority. This will happen when Jesus comes the second time. But the mystery now revealed is that the very kingdom of God has now come and is working among men in a totally unexpected way. It isn't now destroying human rule or removing sin from the earth. It isn't now bringing a baptism of fiery judgment that John announced. It has come quietly and humbly in the form of a Jewish carpenter. It offers to men and women the blessings of God's rule, delivering them from the power of Satan and sin. Here it is. The kingdom of God that Jesus introduced during his first coming is an offer. It's a gift that may be accepted or it may be rejected. As we will see described in the parable of the sower, it depends on the one who hears the gospel and the condition of their heart. That was your introduction. Matthew chapter 13. Let's go back. Matthew 13, verse 3. In verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. This would have been a very familiar image to the Jews, whether they were farmers or not. A man with a seed bag over his shoulder, walking up and down the furrows of the field as he repeatedly reached into the bag and was casting seed on either side. It was a common thing to see in Palestine. In verse 4, And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. The various types of ground would have also been a familiar uh, image to those listening. They would have understood what they were. They would know that it's impossible to control where every seed landed when sowing by hand and that some seeds would inevitably fall by by the wayside or by the hard road, the walking path. Seeds falling on the path couldn't penetrate the hard dirt and take root, so they would become breakfast for the hungry birds. In verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. The rocky ground would have been areas with underlying beds of solid rock, probably limestone, that were deeper than the plow would reach. And they had a very shallow layer of soil over the top covering them. So seeds that would fall on this type of ground would begin to grow, but since the roots couldn't penetrate the rock, they would just shoot up really quick, faster than normal. And initially, these plants would look healthier than the others, growing in the good soil. But in verse 6, when the sun rose and they were scorched, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. So when the burning weather came, the shallow ground would quickly dry out, and since the plants had no real roots, they couldn't get the moisture, and they would soon wither and die. Verse 7, other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. This third type of ground on which seeds could fall would have been cultivated like the good soil, but it would have had thorny weed seeds that would sprout along the grain, uh, along with the grain. And these thistle-bearing weeds would take up most, most of the space and moisture, nourishment, and sunlight from the good plants and choke them out. <coughs> you see that picture? It's called a holy thistle. It's pretty uh, cool. Huh? That's typical of the type of weed that would grow. In verse 8, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. This fourth type of ground, which the seeds could fall, would be considered the good soil. It would be away from the hard walking path, loose, soft, with sufficient depth, and it would be free of weeds. Because of the great condition of the soil, it would yield an amazing crop. It's said that the average ratio of harvested grain seeds to those planted in Palestine 
during the New Testament times was less than 8 to 1. So a tenfold yield would have been well above average. So Jesus is talking about yields of 30, 60, 100. It's truly phenomenal. It's just amazing the, the type of fruit that we're talking about here. And in verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus is saying is, if you, can't, if you can understand it, then understand it. You see all of the figures in this parable, soil, seed, birds, thorns, rocks, sun, etc., were all familiar to those who were hearing. It wasn't that it was really hard to understand what he was saying, but the spiritual truth was not explained. So it was like an impossible riddle whose meaning could only be guessed at. Jesus was pointing out that they would need more than their human understanding to interpret the meaning. Maybe he was inviting those listening there who were serious about following him to ask him for an explanation. Then they would have the ears to hear what he was really saying. And that's what the disciples actually did in verse 10. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, why do you speak to them in parables? Basically they're saying, why bother saying anything at all if they're not going to be able to understand it? They were puzzled because he didn't explain it. And Jesus answered them, verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. He explains that his purpose for speaking in parables is to reveal the meaning, the meaning to those who believe and receive him and to conceal the meaning from those who do not. So what he's saying is, to you who believe in me, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them who do not believe in me, it has not been given. And in verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The one who has is the one who believes and trusts in Jesus and has been given eternal life in the kingdom of God. To these, more will be given. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Those who accept the true light will receive still more light as they grow in obedience to the Lord. The more we obey, the more God reveals to us. And this spiritual blessing they'll have in abundance. But for the unbeliever, the one who has not, it's just the opposite. They don't have salvation, and even the light of God's truth that they do have will be taken away from them. How many thousands heard Jesus speak and witnessed his miracles, but rejected him as their Lord and Savior? They drifted deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness because they refused to receive the divine light that God had shined on them. You see, no one stays static in their relationship with God. We're either moving forward or we're moving backward. The longer we know and are faithful to God, the more his truth and power are revealed to us. The longer a person rejects the knowledge of God that they've been given, the less of God's truth they will understand. Ultimately, God will confirm people in their own stubbornness and let them be bound by their own unbelief. In verse 13, Jesus says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. In their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. It's catchy. That's okay. <laughs> so here, here Jesus plainly says that he was speaking to those who didn't believe 
by parables. And similar to Isaiah's warning to Judah, Jesus' parables were a form of judgment on unbelief. And many of the people who heard and rejected Jesus' clear and simple teachings, like those on the Sermon on the Mount, um, they kept on hearing, but they didn't understand. They kept on seeing his miracles, but they wouldn't perceive who he was. They had intentionally closed their eyes and ears to God and refused to understand with their heart and return in order for him to heal them. In verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. To those who believed, we're given the ability to understand the deep things of God. We see in verse 51 of this chapter that uh, when Jesus finished explaining all of these parables to his disciples, he asked them, have you understood these things? Do you understand what I've said? And they were able to say, yes, we understand. It wasn't because they were smarter than the unbelieving Jews, especially the highly educated scribes and the Pharisees. It was because their faith, it was because of their faith that the eyes of their heart were made able to see and their ears were able to hear the message of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7 through 10. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, and even the depths of God. So we see that God has to open the hearts and minds of believers to understand his truth. So now, in verse 18, Jesus goes into the explanation. What does it all mean? He says, hear then the parable of the sower. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus begins to explain this parable while he was alone with his 12 disciples and a few other uh, believers that were there. It was time for them to finally hear and understand what it really meant, the reality behind Jesus' message. And we see parallel passages in Mark and Luke uh, that the seed being sown is the Word of God. It's the good news of entrance into God's kingdom by grace through faith. So the sower then is Jesus in this case, obviously. But in the broader sense, the sower would be disciples and any other believer from that point forward that would present the gospel of the kingdom of God. Regarding sowers, commentator uh, William Arnault wrote this, As every leaf of the forest and every ripple of the lake, which itself receives a sunbeam on its breast, may throw the sunbeam off again, and so spread the light around. In like manner, everyone, old or young, who receives Christ into his heart, may and will publish with his life and lips that blessed name. This parable revolves around proclaiming the word of God's kingdom. But the main teaching is not about the sower. It's not about the seed being sown. It's about the four types of ground or the heart soil that the word falls on. It's important to see that the soils are basically all the same in the sense that they're all dirt. They're all made of the same stuff. And given the right conditions, all of them could produce a harvest. You see, if a person is not saved, it's, not be it's because he doesn't want to be saved. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The difference in the soils and in the heart's to which they correspond. It's not in their composition, but it's in their condition. And then he goes on to 
describe the different types of people that hear the message of the kingdom. In verse 19, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Some hear the gospel of the kingdom, and because of the hardness of their heart, it never penetrates their soul. They're unable to understand the truth that they hear because they don't really give it consideration, maybe thinking that it's foolishness. And the more they hear it and resist it, the more hard-packed and insensitive their heart becomes. The result of this hardness is a lack of repentance or a sense of guilt. And this insulates them from God's help, and it just leaves them totally exposed to Satan's attacks. These are the people that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 3 and 4, when he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The second type of hearer, in Matthew 13, verse 20. And as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. In contrast to the person with a hardened heart, the person with a shallow heart offers no resistance at all, quickly receiving the gospel with great enthusiasm. The emotional response is immediate and it's positive, and the person's growth seems to just go really quickly and excel beyond others. But because the changes are taking place on the surface and not in the depths of the heart, they're only temporary. These are the people who are guided mainly by their feelings, which were changed for a time, but their soul hasn't really been changed. Below the shallow surface exists a layer of rock that's even harder to penetrate than the hard-packed dirt road. <clears throat> These are those that have a religious experience, but not necessarily a conversion experience. So when their profession of faith in Christ is put to the test through tribulation and persecution caused by their relationship to God and his kingdom, they quickly fall away. Perhaps they find that the cost of discipleship to Jesus is higher than they are willing to pay. Or maybe they can't handle the criticism related to following Christ that may come from family or friends or colleagues. They end up caving to the pressure and compromise or maybe even renounce the faith that they professed. It's important to note here that the same persecution that makes a false believer fall away makes a true believer stronger. The third type of ground that the seed could fall on, verse 22, And as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The, ter the third type of heart condition that Jesus describes is a person whose first love is for the things of the world. Their first concern and preoccupation is with those things, and it blinds them to the importance of the gospel of the kingdom. They're deceived into believing that riches or possessions, prestige or position in this world will satisfy their deepest needs and desires. They're not even aware that they've lost what knowledge of the word they once had or that their spiritual life is totally unfruitful because they had no real interest in such things. You see, a person who is continually preoccupied with money or career or fashions or sports or anything else but is not interested in serving God has a weed-infested heart. And if that person refuses to let go of their worldliness, the word of God's kingdom that has not taken root is in danger of being choked out altogether. And lastly, Jesus describes the receptive here 
As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, and in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This fourth type of heart that God's word may fall on is the type that is hoped for, a heart that has been prepared by the Spirit and is receptive to God. Because of the person's faith, their spiritual ears are open to hear the truth of the kingdom, and their spiritual mind and heart is able to understand it. It's not because they're any less sinful or more perceptive than others. They may have led a life of extreme wickedness before they came to Christ, as opposed to others who live a life that's maybe uh, morally, by human standards, better or more respectable. It's not because they're smarter than any of the others. They may have a, a little education or a low IQ, as opposed to many who don't believe that are highly trained and intelligent. Ultimately, though, the mark of these genuine believers, those with a good heart, is that they constantly bear good fruit. This, this spiritual fruit is shown in their attitude, as described by Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And the fruit is also shown in their behavior. Paul says in Philippians 1.11 that they are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Jesus doesn't say that believers would produce just a little bit of fruit or, or some fruit, but he says that they would produce it in amazing abundance. The yields he mentions here represent 10,000%, 6,000%, 3,000%. Again, if the average yield was around 8 to 1, that's 800%. What does that say about the least productive believer or the least fruitful believer? What should our life look like? We see from Jesus' words in John 15, 5, that this fruit only comes from being in relationship with Jesus and remaining intimately connected to him. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, when we go back to the beginning of time, back to creation, we see that God created us to rule as kings and queens with an appropriate domain. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let, us have, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Each one of us has a kingdom or a queendom, if you will, a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what actually happens. This is the range of our effective will, the things that we truly have say over, our thoughts, our body, our actions. This is what makes us healthy human beings. You see, to have no say over these things is to diminish who we are as people created in the image of God. An example of this would be like slaves who their, their bodies are at the disposal of somebody else. As part of our nature, God equipped us to function and fulfill the original job description through personal relationship and interactive responsibility with Him. Dallas uh, Willard wrote this, We are meant to exercise our rule only in union with God as He acts with us. He intended to be our constant companion or co-worker in the creative enterprise of earth, of life on earth. Tragically, we fell away from this divine purpose through the fall of Adam. We mistrusted and distanced ourselves from God and naturally from one another. And as we, as we each, excuse me, 
And th this was the condition, this was the situation in the human condition when Jesus entered the scene preaching the gospel and announcing the mystery of the kingdom. So in the parable of the sower, we see that God's kingdom and His rule is now available to all people everywhere. But not everyone's going to receive it. As we each rule our own kingdom, we also carry the responsibility for the condition of our heart. Jesus came to redeem our rule here on earth so that now and through all eternity, we will once again be able to rule with Him. But God's not going to overthrow every earthly kingdom, including yours and mine, until Jesus comes back the second time. For now, He gives an invitation for each of us to submit our rule to Him and to experience the love, joy, and peace that comes from seeking first and being in the kingdom of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The band's going to come up now, and we're going to spend some time in worship. As we look to communion, this is a great time to kind of evaluate the, the soil of your own heart and determine you know, what the weeds are in your own life and what you need to get rid of. As we take the bread, which is Jesus' body, and as we take the, the grape juice or the wine and dip it in there, we remember his blood and his body that was shed and that was broken for us so that we could actually be a part of God's kingdom. We're going to spend time worshiping God now in song and in prayer. If you need prayer, there's going to be elders in the back that you can talk to. And if you've never submitted your rule, your life to God, now's the time to do it. Come back and talk to us. And you can worship God today by giving. You have offering boxes on the side of the building and in the back. Pray with me. Father, again, we pray that our ears would be able to hear your message, Lord, that our heart would be able to understand. And Father, we trust that uh, your word has gone out and that um, you're working in our lives. Father, I pray that whatever's getting in the way of each one of us, Lord, from truly allowing you to rule in our lives and for your glory to be seen in who we are, Lord, I pray that you would reveal it to us now and that you would help us to give it up. We thank you for your grace, your power. In Jesus' name.